Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 16, you'll find it there printed in the bulletin. You also will find copies of God's Word in the Purax in front of you if you'd prefer to have the text uh, open before you in your lap as together we look at the Word of God in this ongoing series in the book of Exodus, a series we've entitled Delivered. This is message number 20 uh, in this series as we are slowly but surely coursing our way through this incredible redemptive narrative, uh, the greatest, we may call it, the salvation story of the Old Testament, the people of Israel taken uh, out of captivity in Egypt and brought over the course of this narrative, over the course of the the first five books of the Old Testament being brought uh, to the edge of the promised land. And we too, as pilgrim people this morning, those who have been redeemed by the Lord, but are not yet home in the promised land, in a very real sense, find ourselves like the people of Israel in the midst of a wilderness, uh, in the midst of a pilgrim land of which we are passing through on our way as um, John Bunyan would put it, on our way to the celestial city, on our way to crossing the Jordan and finding that we are now in the land that truly flows with milk and with honey. As we look together at Exodus chapter 16, I want you to consider yourself in that position, that you're like the people of Israel here, that we are in the position that they're in, utterly dependent upon the Lord as they walk in the wilderness and struggling to trust Him and struggling to obey Him, and yet in His faithfulness, He upholds us all the more. With the hope of that message, let's turn our attention to Exodus chapter 16. This is God's Word. They, that's the people of Israel, set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out from the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your gr- Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, 
And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever ever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as they could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses had commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, The Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place, let no one out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like a coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses says, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and take it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we come now before your word this morning, we would ask that you would take our minds and our hearts captive. We would ask that you would clear away from our attentions everything that would vie for them except this, your word, by the power of the Spirit. And that we would receive now this word that you have given to us like a seed deeply planted in our hearts. And that over the course of our lives, it would bear tremendous fruit, speaking to the power of your grace and your glory. Come now and know every heart here 
and meet us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's really difficult, isn't it, to trust the Lord? It's just really difficult to trust the Lord. You know, last week I didn't get the chance to be with you. I was down in the, the large metropolis of Starkville, Mississippi, dropping off my daughter at college. My oldest daughter dropping her off at college and waving and saying goodbye. I won't go too far down that road lest I cry. It's a moment of great trust, isn't it? Some of you parents in this room know all about that. It's a moment of great trust. Lord, how will she do? Will she today get up and go to church? Praise the Lord, that's her plan. But it's a moment of trust. And in a myriad of different ways throughout our life, we are struggling and in fits and spurts to trust the Lord, to believe His promises and to do what it is that He's called us to do. When we read Exodus chapter 16, we find, don't we, that we're not alone in that. I can promise there are all kinds of people around you this morning who feel the exact same way that you do. They're struggling to trust the Lord. They're struggling to obey the Lord. They need the Lord to confirm His presence and His promises to them. To show forth his lavish provision yet again. And he's going to do that. He's going to do that over the course of this service this morning. To remind us again freshly of how we as his people will not be beggars of bread. And we will not be those who will want. He indeed is our good shepherd. But it's a hard lesson, isn't it? And it's a lesson we've got to learn over and over over the course of our lives. It's not as if you could just get it lodged away once in your mind and your heart, and then you never have to return to it again. We've seen that already with the people of Israel. In fact, I don't want to spoil it all for you, but the fact is they struggled last week to actually believe the Lord, and they're struggling this week to believe the Lord, and guess what? They're going to struggle next week to believe the Lord. It's going to actually feel a lot like your life. As you go through each and every day and work through each and every week, something new appears, something new presents itself that stretches your faith beyond where your faith is actually stable. And that's the purpose of the Lord. He's actually working to grow you, grow you to trust Him, and grow you to obey Him. In many ways, that's stretching for our whole congregation right now, isn't it? As the Lord grows us, as we think as a local body, thinking, Lord, what are you going to do in the future? As we've got this Cornerstone Ministry expansion team that's meeting. We've got a a Cornerstone family meeting today to talk about finances and to talk about the future. For many of us in this room, it strikes a bit of a chord of fear. Lord, can we trust you? What's going to happen? Am I going to be caught in a wilderness and not be sure where my next meal is going to come from? That's where we live. So many of the times running to fear, living as if we are impoverished with a mindset of scarcity when the abundance of God's provision lies in wait for us. As we look today at Exodus chapter 16, I want you to see that struggle among the people of God. And then I want you to see that we have a God who answers that struggle. And I want you to see it in these two points. I want you to see that we're a grumbling people. And I want you to see why we're a grumbling people, how that actually happens in our hearts. And then I want you to see, secondly, that we have a generous God. He's generous with physical resources. And most importantly, he's generous with spiritual resources. And we're going to see that over the course of Exodus 16 this morning. 
But we've got to first look at this difficult truth of we're a grumbling people. Did you, did you notice that right at the beginning of the, of the text this morning? There in verse 3, the people of Israel, they're in the wilderness. And notice their sentiment. Here's their praise song to the Lord in the morning. Would that we had died by the Lord in the hand of Egypt. Would that the exodus had never happened and we were still in Egypt with our meat pots and eating bread to the full. Oh, you have brought us out in the wilderness to kill us with hunger. There's their praise song in the morning. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the people of Israel's song in the morning as they gather in the wilderness. And it is nothing but full of grumbling complaint. And it's actually filled with, in some sense, what is often the recipe for how grumbling grows up in our lives and can very often take over our lives if we're not careful. I want you to see a couple of things that this statement reveals about their heart, reveals to us about grumbling. And the first is this. I want you to see that grumbling often is associated and often comes from a reminiscing about the past in a way that is dislodged from reality. <laughs> Reminiscing about the past that is dislodged from reality. No, notice what they're saying here. Do you remember how amazing it was in Egypt? Like how we just like sat around the campfire and sang Kumbaya with our major pots of meat and we just ate bread to the full. Do you remember how every new day was a new feast in Egypt? Boy, those were the good old days. Well, <laughs> I need to tell you, we don't find any of that in the book of Exodus. In fact, when we go back and read through the back chapters and we start hearing the sentiment of the people of Egypt, I'll just give you one example. There's many of them. Like in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23, we don't, we don't hear those words. Here's what we hear. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Hmm. No meat pots there. No, no baskets of bread to the full. You know, what's very interesting is in the midst of trial and difficulty, the people of Israel go back and they have a highly selective and romanticized memory about how things were really good in the good old days, right? Sometimes you've probably reflected even upon your own past. And I've had encounters, and some of you who know me, I'm, a, I'm very much a glass half full kind of guy. And even as I look back on difficult circumstances in my life, there's kind of fuzzy, there's kind of a fuzzy, uh, you know, membrane around the memory where I'm just sort of like everything's a little sunshine and roses for me as I look back on it. Very often I'll be saying something to Christy about, well, you remember how great that was? And then she goes, well, do you remember this and this and this and this? It was an utter nightmare. And I'm like, oh yeah, it really was. When I completely forgot about that, right? So she helps my memory to remember how miserable things actually were. <laughs> and reconstruct a real honest and truthful picture of the past. But do you know that's what often happens when we are in the midst of difficulty? We think we had it better in the past. Things were better at a different time than where I'm at. And, and we're at that point when we're doing that, you know what we're actually struggling with? We're struggling to embrace the truth of the matter. We're living a bit of a lie. We're trapped in a falsehood, in a selected memory. And it actually leads us to a place where we're grumbling about things that we ought not to be grumbling about because we've really not tied into the truth of how things really were. 
Not only do we get romantically nostalgic and become dislodged from the reality of the past, you know what also happens? We are exaggerating about how desperate it is in the present. We actually see the people of Israel do that as, as well. Now, they're in the wilderness. Things are tight. I mean, there's not a, there's not a Meredith, There's not a Puckett's on every corner as they're, as they're walking in the wilderness. They're having to make wise decisions about portion control with regards to how hungry they are, how thirsty they are. It's not true, however, that they're starving to death. <laughs> they act like they're starving to death. It's not true that they're starving to death, and we know why. We know that they're not starving to death because in the next chapter, we read that they have herds and that they have flocks <laughs> that they have brought out of Egypt who are looking for water. Huh. Well, that would have been interesting to know as we're looking here. Uh, so, so in other words, they have the potential for milk. <laughs> they have the potential to make cheese. They have the potential to slaughter an animal and have that meat pot that they're complaining they don't have right here in chapter 16. All of a sudden, as they are reminiscing romantically about a past that never really existed in the way they've imagined it, they look at their present and it's so desperate and there's no way they can get out of it. Right? It's a little bit like your teenage boy when he opens up the refrigerator and he says, we have nothing to eat. I'm starving. First of all, he's not starving and he probably could live for two weeks on what's in your refrigerator. But what he's saying is, there's no Sonic. There's no McDonald's out that I want them here. My order has not been taken. That's what he's trying to communicate. Something very similar is actually happening here among the people of Israel. The nostalgia has got them. The perception of their place and time is obscured and distorted. And not surprisingly, that breeds a spirit of grumbling. And you begin very quickly beginning to look for someone to blame when that happens, right? Whose fault is this that the refrigerator is not full? That's what we see thirdly here. We grumble and we look for someone to blame. Who's in charge of this? Why am I in the wilderness with not enough bread in the meat pots that I enjoyed in Egypt? Oh yeah, Moses, Aaron... Oh yeah, you brought us out in the wilderness to kill this whole assembly. Oh yeah, that's right. This is a genocidal effort on the behalf of Moses and Aaron. They're like, oh man, just write me a thank you note for bringing you out of slavery. No, no, you're here to kill me. Notice this is not, lest we get confused, this is not the voicing of an appropriate complaint. Uh, this is not the mention of discouragement or a lament over sorrow or pain. Notice the nature of what's actually going on here. This is accusation. This is accusing of wrongdoing. In fact, the word used for grumble here in Exodus 16 is tied to the word in the Hebrew for rebellion. This is not, I'm in pain. Lord, I will trust you in your leading. Hear the cry of your servant. This is, I don't trust you. It's your fault that we're here, and I need to get out of here in order to survive. That's a different, that's a different message. Now, this is actually worse than rebelling against Moses and Aaron. We have multiple times in the text, in verses 7 and 8, we're told they're actually rebelling against God. Moses and Aaron are just like, hey, we're just the messengers. Don't shoot the messengers. Who are we? We're just the servants. Your complaint, your grumbling is actually against the Lord. And it's really remarkable when you hear the nature of the grumbling. It'll make you shudder a little bit. Did you hear the words? 
Would that we would have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt? Let me rephrase that. It would have been better that you had never saved us. It would have been better that you would have never redeemed us. If this is what salvation is like, I don't want any part of that. Does that hit you? Hits you at a different level when you begin to understand what it is they're actually declaring. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm God, and I'm not, in this circumstance, I'm about ready to throw in the towel. I mean, you've done everything that you can to care for these people and to prove over and over and over that you're a faithful and trustworthy God and guide who will care for their needs every step of the way. And what it is that you hear here among the people of God is that they're ready to give up on him. And to turn and subvert, even disavow, the salvation that he has won for them. Well, praise the Lord. God is not like me and you. You see, this grumbling people, praise the Lord. They have a generous God. They have a generous God. And when we look at the generosity of God here, we're amazed. We're really amazed in this text. You see, he, he, he doesn't. Even though it's a little, <laughs> you wonder what he's going to do. It says, he heard their grumbling. You go, hmm, wonder what's going to happen. Is he going to leave scorched earth? <laughs> Is he going to turn and leave them based upon their response? No. It says he heard their grumbling and he determined to rain bread from heaven. The generosity of our God is on display. At twilight, he says in verse 12, you shall eat meat. There's a quail are going to come, and they're going to descend on the, the whole congregation. In the morning, you're going to be filled with bread. You know, he actually uses the same word that they were talking about, being filled with bread in Egypt. He uses the same word. You're going to be filled with bread in the morning. And, and notice, that's exactly what happened. God was faithful in everything that he did. As a generous God, he showed that he would provide for his people the food that they need. I don't, I don't know what your physical limitations or struggles or how tight the belt feels right now in your household. Um, obviously, speaking to Williamson County people, it's not that tight. Not in respective of the world, certainly not in respective of people who are wandering in the wilderness. It'd be good for us to be honest and acknowledge that. God has been very, very kind to us. Very, very generous to us. No matter what socioeconomic structure you think you fit into. God has been very generous and he tells to his people that those who are his people will not beg bread. That the Lord will give to us our daily portion. Have you found that to be so? And have you also found that you question him? And that you still grumble? And that oftentimes it's because it's not what you want or it's not quite the amount that you think it should be. But isn't it always the right amount? Isn't always enough? Hasn't he always been faithful? Part of what this text is teaching us is that our God in his generosity and his abundance fills you up with meat and bread. And we have, let's be honest, refrigerators full and pantries in the plural. And we have supermarkets all around us. And yet, we can be a very difficult people to please. This is calling out our grumbling, isn't it, here? It's calling us to look to the generosity of our God and to be thankful that he provides for us food, 
the daily food that we need. But there's a deeper provision that's here. It's not just a provision of food that we see as the generosity of God. You know what we also see? We see a provision for faith. A provision for faith here in the text. Why did God give to the people of Israel this food? Why did he decide to fill them up with meat in the evening and bread in the morning? Yes, because he loved them. That's right and appropriate and he cares for them. But what does he actually say in the text? Look at verse 12. It says, so that you will know that I am the Lord your God. I'm giving you this food, really not just to fill you up. To be honest, you've got herds and flocks. (laughs) You've actually got food. You're just complaining it's not the amount or what it is that you want. You've got it. But I'm going to pour it out on you anyway because I'm a loving and gracious God. But the reason I'm giving it to you is not really to just fill you up. It's that you'll know that I am the Lord your God. That's a really remarkable statement. Now, you might be saying to yourself, they should already know this. This should not come as a surprise. He has shown himself to be the Lord your God when he issued the ten plagues in Egypt and humbled the Egyptian gods, when he parted the Red Sea and brought them over on dry land. You might be say, like, they've seen that he is the Lord their God. And yet... When a trial comes up, it seems as if all of those things escape from our memories. Isn't that interesting? They just seem to be very hard to grasp, hard to remember. If we caught Israel on a good day, probably the day that the quail actually descended and they were eating around the meat pots at the campfires there in the wilderness, they're like, our God is awesome. He's amazing. And then as you saw later in the text... Some of them went out to gather on the seventh day, the day that, that the Lord wasn't going to rain down bread, and they went out to gather because they, they wanted more and they didn't trust the promises of God. They're like you and me. They, they, they believe and they don't believe. They, they know the Lord their God and they're getting to know the Lord their God. And each time that a trial comes, it's like their faith bottoms out. And when it bottoms out, they begin to question his goodness. This is a pattern, isn't it? You notice this pattern in your life? (laughs) I notice notice it in mine. You're strong in the faith. Look at all the great things that the Lord has done. And then a little trial. You know, miss a meal. And all of a sudden, where's God? He's abandoned me. How is Israel going to come to know and trust the Lord better? How is it that you come to know and trust the Lord better? How does that actually work? Well, by entering the wilderness. See, there's a provision here of faith that the Lord is working in spiritual resources in the lives and the hearts of the people of Israel. Do you know how he grows your faith and trust? He, He puts you in the wilderness. He puts you in a place of need. He puts you in trial after trial after trial so that you can see over and over and over again that he will meet everything that you need. That's how you learn it. That's how you grow. Do You see, this is why it's actually the kindness and the generosity of the Lord that brings you into the trials that you face. It's those actions because he's looking out for your soul. He loves you so much, he doesn't want you to try to keep the eggs in the basket of the world and put your trust there and realize that it's all going to let you down. And so he takes things away from you. 
He touches you with affliction. He removes and drains bank accounts. He creates strife and difficulty. He uses the organization and orchestration of the things of the world providentially in order to squeeze out actually what's in us so that he can do the work of shaping us after his likeness, growing us in deep trust and obedience. That's the richness of what we see actually happening here is that he wants us to come and know him as the Lord so that we can trust him. A beautiful picture even this week of a number of congregation members in our fellowship who are suffering, having great difficulties, and to be able to sit at bedsides or talk on the phone and be able to hear on the other side, though I walk through these valleys and trials, I know that the Lord has me, I know that the Lord has purposes for me in this because I look back over his faithfulness through the years and generations. And I realize I can trust him with that which I don't understand right now. And in due time it will become clear. And only through this path will he begin to burn away the dross and refine the gold of his own work in my own soul and life. Do you see that's a step of faith, isn't it? That's a provision for faith. It's going to take the people of Israel time and time and time again to go through the trial, to grumble and complain, to see the Lord's provision, to rejoice in His provision, to begin to trust Him. It takes all of us a long time, doesn't it? It takes all of us a lifetime to learn to trust and follow the Lord. And it's His kindness that puts us, in a sense, very much through the trials and difficulties so that we can begin to cast our cares upon Him knowing that he cares for us. What's interesting about this provision of food and this provision of faith is that in the construct of what the Lord is doing is he's using physical matters to get to spiritual issues. That's what he often does in our lives. We like to separate those two things. You know, to do spiritual things over here and then physical things over here and never the twain meet. Well, actually, they very much connect. Our spiritual life is met in often our physical challenges and difficulties. And the Lord, as he puts the people of Israel in these basic sustenance difficulties as they're walking in the wilderness, he's pruning away at their hearts, building trust in him towards obedience to his commands so that they can begin to be the kind of people that he has saved them to be. You see, that brings us to the third provision spiritually that he has for us in this text, not just a provision of food or a provision of faith, but a provision of formation. He's actually giving shape to their life over a course, over a path, a provision of formation. Now, what do I mean by that? You know, they're going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. I don't know about you, that's a long, that's a, that's a long trip. That's a long car ride, 40 years, um, caravanning through the wilderness. Um, it's, it's not the most efficient path, too, if you watch the path that they take. If you go and course it back through, where did they go and how did they go? Well, we call it wilderness wanderings for a reason. They spend 40 years going in circles. You think to yourself, well, the promised land's right there. Like, we can, we can see it. We can get to it. And he's like, it's not yet time. You're not ready. You're not ready for the promised land. We're not after the most efficient path to get to A from B because we're on a spiritual journey of the heart. 
We're on the work of what the wilderness and I are in, you understand. Condemnation of sin and yet still struggle with sin and struggle with faithfulness. We go through trials in this pilgrim life looking to the horizon of the day in which Christ will return and we'll be in that better Canaan, the new heavens and the new earth. And as we walk that way, God is saying to us as he's waited these thousands of years, we're not yet ready. The full number hasn't come in. The growth of the kingdom of God is not where it needs to be yet. We feel like we're wilderness wandering, but actually it is the quickest way to get the kingdom of God, the church, and your heart and my heart ready for what he has in store as our next step. There's a path of formation that's taking place in this text, and we've got to trust the Lord with that path. You look at your own life. How many dead ends can you see? I see all kinds of dead ends. I see all kinds of things that don't necessarily make sense. There are things that I know that I won't have answers to until I get into glory. And I'm going to have to trust the Lord with that. Do you have those? Uh, Undoubtedly. We all do if we live long enough. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Efficiency is not the highest thing on his radar. Sanctification is. For you, the peace and the purity of your heart. He's after that more than a quick spot between A and B. The beauty of this formative path is that the Lord is honing us and shaping us, getting us ready for what he has in store for us and for the home that he has gone to prepare for us. You know, it's wonderful to read the book of Deuteronomy And to actually have it reflect back on the book of Exodus. In fact, if you're not right now in a Bible reading plan, I would just encourage you, maybe step into the book of Deuteronomy and just start working through it as we, uh, in the next few weeks, are reading through and studying together uh, the book of Exodus. Because Deuteronomy is like a commentary on the book of Exodus. It tells you and interprets for you how to understand what's going on in the book of Exodus. And interestingly, Moses, as he's preaching to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy, preparing them to enter the promised land. Here's what he says about um, what the Lord is doing at this particular point. He says this in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. He says, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. I want you to remember how the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. And here was his purpose, that he might humble you that he might test you, that he might know what is in your heart, that you would keep his commands and his statutes. That's what he's after. (laughs) You wonder why it is that you have pain and suffering? That's the reason. He wants to humble you. You In a remarkable way, what what he wants to do is to bring about a sanctification in you. You see, he's still saving you. I don't know if you think about it often in those terms, but in the Bible, the term salvation is used with multiple tenses. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved. Can we say that about the people of Israel right now? Don't answer too quickly. Yes. Why can we say that they have been saved? They've been brought out of Egypt. They've been free from the bonds of slavery. These people are saved. Now, are they saved? No, not quite. They are being saved. 
The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, I have preached to you the gospel. You have gone through these trials that you might be saved. <laughs> that through the challenges and sufferings, you're going to grow up into the salvation that is yours. In other words, I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to grow you up into the salvation that you already have. And see, you see what he's doing in this text. This is why he gives to the people of Israel this path of formation. He knows that by saving them out of Egypt, the job is not done. He knows that the moment you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation and were changed and converted and transferred from the kingdom of darkness to kingdom of light, the, the work was not done. He granted to you the Holy Spirit. He's given you the church. He's granted to you the Bible. He's given you spiritual disciplines to walk in and commands that are meant to form you and shape you and grow you and sanctify you. Did you notice he did the same thing here? It's really quite interesting. Did you notice he gave them two things meant to form them? He gave them rules and he gave them rest. He gave them rules and he gave them rest. And you know what? I'm just going to tell you something. This is no extra charge. They didn't ask for either. They asked for food and he gave them that. And then he gave them more than they bargained for. He gave them the real spiritual nourishment they needed. Did you notice that the manna was both a grace gift and a test? Did you notice that? L listen to the way that the text reads in verse 4. Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them as to whether they will walk in my way or not. Now, how is it a test? Well, did you notice that God put laws around it? He said, I'm going to rain down bread, and here's how it's going to work. You're going to go out every morning, and you're going to gather it. Each person's going to get an omer, which is about a liter, and you're going to carry it back to your tent. Everybody's going to be satisfied. If you have any left over, you throw it out because it's not going to last till the next day, and you're going to have to... Trust me that I'm going to provide for it for you tomorrow. And they obeyed perfectly. No, of course, they kept a little just in case God wasn't faithful. And they woke up the next morning and just as he said, there were worms in it and it stank and it was no good. He put laws around it so that they would follow him. And it says that Moses was angry with them. They were still not learning the lesson. Had they learned the lesson? Yeah, no, kind of. It's a little like sanctification. By fits and spurts. By two steps forward and a step back. And you know after they, the worms happened and the bread was there the next day and probably a few other people tried it one more time and then it didn't work again, by the third day they're like, okay, we'll do what you said. Mm, sounds a lot like children. <laughs> you know what we are? We're the children of God. He gives us these laws not because he's trying to hurt us, restrict us, keep us from joy and peace. Because he wants us to know the Lord our God. He wants us to trust him. And the rules that he puts around are intended for us to embrace him. Because he's got a blessing in store for us in that. 
Do you know what he also gave them? Isn't it remarkable in here? He gave them rest. They didn't even ask for rest. (laughs) Again, he's so generous. They didn't even ask for rest. But notice he says, there'll be a double portion that's given to you on the sixth day. But I'm not going to be raining down bread on the seventh day. You're going to have to rest. You're going to have to sit still and stop. No work will be done. Now Now just remind yourselves, who are these people? These are rehabbing slaves. These are recovering slaves. These are people who haven't had a day off in their life. And God says, I'm going to make you stop. I'm not even going to let you collect your food. All you got to do is go out there in the field and pick it up. I'm not even going to let you do that. I'm going to make you sit and I'm going to make you rest. I'm going to like the creative pattern back in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. You're going to rest like the Lord. You're going to take in the gifts of God. And you're going to be reminded on that day of what? That God has been good. You're going to sit still and remind yourself that God is good. That he has provided for everything that you need. Do you know that's what you're doing right now? Do you know that's what this is all about in worship? Do you know why he calls you to Sabbath and he calls you to worship, to rest in him on this day because he knows that your tendency and my tendency is to think that life comes by you putting in a lot of effort and you really trust yourself more than you trust him. And he sees that in the people of Israel in spades. And so they get up on that first Sabbath morning and notice what it says. I love the text. I really appreciated the specificity of the text. It says some of the people got up together. A few of them learned something. A few of them didn't get up together on the seventh day. That's awesome. Let's rejoice in that. Someone said, he told us there wouldn't be any. I'm not going out there looking. I, I, I did exactly what he said. And, and look, it's still here and there's not worms in it. It's like, it's like, he, it's like he's trustworthy. It's like he's going to do what he says. And there were some who were like, I don't know. I'm going out there to gather. But I bet, they, I bet over the course of the Sabbath, fewer and fewer did. It's called the Christian life. (laughs) It's called the Christian life. That's the struggle, the faith, the struggle of growth, of coming back to the Lord and finding Him over and over generous and gracious and forgiving and calling us back again to follow Him. You know, this, this text in such a beautiful way teaches us of why we so much need Christ. Because no matter how much we grow and no matter how obedient we actually become and no matter how much we see the Lord sanctifying our own character and Christ-likeness coming through, we never arrive, do we? Some of us in this room can testify to that greatly. We've been walking with the Lord for 40 years and there's still sins that we struggle with. And we realize we're far along in this path now that we're probably going to go to our grave with some of these struggles. Do you know one of the reasons I believe that the Lord doesn't allow you to get totally free of sin here is because you'd take a lot of credit for it. You're going to have to trust him to take care of you in eternity. That he's going to do away with that sin finally at a time in the future when he burns away all the dross and all, the, all that's left is gold. You'll have to actually close your eyes in death And know that you're not perfect. And trust the Lord for grace. What wisdom is that from our God? 
to not allow us to be sanctified fully here so that we would have to trust him in the moment where we pass into there. It is his kindness that points us to Jesus, right? That we need someone who can actually do this for us. And all over the New Testament we see that, but right most brilliantly, of course, after his baptism. After his baptism, when the Lord Jesus passed through those waters, where did he go? We're told he was led by the Spirit, driven, literally, in the Greek, by the Spirit. How did the people of Israel get here? They were led by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Jesus was led into that wilderness. And how long was he there? He was there 40 days, mirroring the 40 years. What did he do while he was there? He fasted. He got hungry. How was he struggling when he was there in the wilderness? He was tempted by the evil one. How? Regarding bread. To turn these stones into bread. And what did Jesus do in that moment of temptation? Did he grumble? <laughs> did he complain? Did he say, I wish you'd not send me? <laughs> you know, if we just never come out of Exodus, if the Exodus had never happened, things would be okay. Is that what he said? I wish I was in the throne room. Wish I had not been here. He said to the evil one, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The real sustenance is the promises of God. He's teaching us that he is us. The, the us that we're not. But the us that we know we need to be. And he is it on our behalf. And he is the only fitting substitute. The one who perfectly could go to the cross with no sin on his record. And who could receive our record of sin and pay for it fully to make us his own. He's proving that and showing that to us. So that he could actually say to you and me this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, I am the bread of life. Anyone who comes and feeds on me, he will never hunger. Who drinks of me will never thirst. See, that's the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ today is that He is the Word made flesh. He is the substitute who has come to redeem us as people from our sins. And as we begin to find our confidence in Him and begin to rest in Him, the more He'll begin to shape us after His likeness, give us His hope, and lead us to the joy and the strength that is our salvation. Today, with all your needs and with all those things you tend to grumble about, Lay them at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and know that they have all been met in Christ. And the pains and the sufferings of this life are not meant to destroy you. They're meant to purify you. They're meant to make you like Him. And it is God's generosity and His kindness that will lead you through this wilderness to the banks of a Jordan River, of which when you and I go under, we'll come back on the other side. And we will know something sweet as if we've never known before. A new heavens and a new earth and a salvation that will last forever. Praise be to God, the future of his people. And if you're in Christ, your future. Father in heaven, we pray today that you would give us that hope. You would encourage us in the strength of this powerful gospel message. 
Lord, would we today rest as those who know that you provide for us? Would we see that you will care for our physical needs? Will you see that you are conjuring up within us a stronger faith? That you are forming within us obedience and sanctification? Lord, would you have your way in the life and the heart of us, your people? And would you give us your joy as we continue in our worship of you? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.